This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. The Supreme Court kicked off the October term 2020 last month, returning to their regular diet of conferences and oral arguments after their summer recess. But for those of us who cover and follow the Supreme Court closely, They were never really very far from our minds. Even if there weren't oral arguments, it was a busy summer as the justices fielded requests for emergency relief in cases involving everything from election law to the death penalty and coronavirus safety in prison. Joining me to discuss the so-called and sometimes controversial shadow docket is John Elwood. If you are a regular reader of SCOTUS blog, you probably know him as the author of the popular Realist Watch column. He's also the head of the appellate and Supreme Court practice at Arnold and Porter and has argued nine cases before the court. John, welcome. Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be here. So let's start at the very beginning. What do we mean when we talk about the shadow docket and how is it different from how the court normally deals with cases? So the court's normal cases are on the so-called merits docket. They're cases where the justices decide to grant review after a fairly lengthy process that itself involves fairly full briefing. And then they have a separate and even fuller round of merits briefing, including usually tons of briefs from outside groups, uh, amicus groups, uh, all of which is done on a fairly leisurely schedule. Then they hold oral argument, usually a couple months later. And then they deliver substantial opinions, setting forth the court's reasoning, explicitly signed by various justices with a recorded vote and resolving the case. The shadow docket consists of what is formally known as the applications docket. That's when litigants come to the court asking for temporary action, usually on a fairly time sensitive basis, frequently to seek a stay or pause some actions of some other court or some litigant. Uh, Frequently, it's to allow some government action to go forward or to require it to stop. Um, And the case is still usually before some other court on the merits. It's just that a party is coming to the Supreme Court uh, seeking to determine what the status quo is going to be while that other litigation is going on. So where did the term shadow docket come from? It sounds sort of nefarious. Well, we owe it to uh, University of Chicago law professor Will Bode. Uh, in an interview he gave with, uh, I think, to Adam Liptak in 2014, he criticized the Supreme Court's unexplained orders for not always living up to its otherwise high standards. And I think that inspired him in the following year in 2015. He wrote a very influential and much read uh, introduction to a symposium in the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty uh, that set forth his criticism and which first used the term. So why, I alluded to this uh, at the introduction, but why have we been spending so much time talking about it? Why has there been so much coverage of sort of the concept of the shadow docket lately? I think the single biggest reason for it is essentially the the Trump administration's uh, initiatives and legal challenges to them. They filed something like 36 applications in three and three quarters years Uh, That compares with, I think, eight applications during 16 years of the Bush and Obama administrations. Uh, They have, however, been remarkably successful that they've won full or partial relief in something like 23 of 36 cases, which is almost 64 percent versus, I think, four of eight uh, or 50 percent during the Bush and Obama years. I feel like sort of people's views on the 
federal government's filings are sort of a Rorschach test for their views on the Trump administration. And, and I'm not going to ask for, don't, not necessarily asking for your views personally, but if you could sort of summarize sort of the arguments, you know, one side, I think, regards it as overreaching. The other side regards it as sort of a necessary course correction. Is that sort of the basic summary? Yeah, I think that that's, a, I think that's fair. Um, they certainly are making more use of it uh, than past administrations have. Uh, Jeff Wall, who is the acting solicitor general, basically blames it on uh, legal challenges. They say that uh, that there are a lot of uh, you know state actors who are interested in doing impact litigation. Uh, district judges are fairly liberal nowadays, or fairly free about handing out nationwide or universal injunctions, and uh, you know that requires them to go into court if they don't want to have their uh, their initiatives shut down while they're in uh, while they're in litigation, and there's you know it's kind of a perfect storm. The phrase is overused, but uh, there's an influential opinion written by Chief Justice Roberts in 2012 in the Maryland DNA case, suggesting that when the government programs are uh, enjoined, that it suffers an irreparable harm, which is one of the necessary prerequisites for getting injunctive relief is irreparable harm. And, uh, you know, basically pointing at that opinion, it's given them more room to come into court and seek relief. Uh, some people say that it is, you know, that they're overreaching because they're running to the Supreme Court so often. But, uh, you know, there are some fairly high profile defenders, like, for example, Don Verrilli, President Obama's solicitor general uh, for much of his term. He, he, they points out that they're winning. And he says that, you know, he would have done it, too. He would have gone to court more, too if he thought he was going to win, but he thought there was no point in going into court if he was just going to lose. So let's take a step back, I guess. Can you talk a little bit in general terms about what the process is like for dealing with a fast-moving emergency application? For example, a capital case in which the court is likely to be closely divided. What's going on at the Supreme Court? Well, to begin with, in capital cases, they're, they're kind of sui generis because um, they actually have, there's a, a separate deputy clerk who's the, I think that she's called the applications clerk, but commonly known as the death clerk, uh, because much of the applications docket does, as you say, involve capital punishment. And particularly for capital punishment, uh, the litigants are frequently in touch with the uh, applications clerk and letting them know you know, we're going to be filing in a few hours. The execution is timed for this, you know, set for this time. Um, and then they'll reach out and find out from the other side how quickly they can respond and so forth. Um, but uh, I think for most cases, though, that don't involve capital punishment, uh, the, the this whole docket is triggered by the filing of a temporary stay motion, uh, you know, which I think probably ordinarily is not preceded by a call to the applications or death clerk. Um, and then, you know, uh, uh, filing a filing of, say, 20 or 30 pages, maybe 40 pages, and they'll um, seek, um, uh, you know, a stay from the court or seek some sort of action on a, a usually short turnaround basis. Uh, and it's, a, it's submitted to an individual justice. Sometimes they will ask the other side to respond and set a deadline for filing a response. Um, Sometimes a single justice will handle it by him or herself, uh, but frequently uh, they will submit it or they will refer it to the entire court and the entire court will act. 
But again, it's usually on a very short turnaround basis. In capital punishment cases, it can sometimes be completely briefed in the course of a single night, maybe one, you know, two days. Um, but in ordinary cases, it's it's much longer. You know, uh, it might involve you know a week or sometimes two weeks. Right. So much much faster than the ordinary process, but certainly much longer than capital cases. Right. Right. Yes. It's. Uh, it is uh, it is luxuriously spread out for capital cases, but it's very compressed compared to the Supreme Court's ordinary schedule for briefing cases. So there has been, you know, there's been a lot of attention paid to the shadow docket lately. There's also been a fair amount of criticism. What sort of what's been the source of some of the criticism, and, and are there counter arguments? And I, I think there's probably both sort of procedural and substantive criticism. Right. Um, well, I, I think procedurally, there's criticism because it, evol- it allows less time. Uh, it's a much more compressed timetable and involves less briefing. Um, it also involves less transparency because frequently the orders are summary. Uh, they're just a sentence or two. Uh, they're usually unsigned, so you don't even know what justices you know, agreed with it. And there's frequently or usually no vote count. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's th- those are kind of the procedural um, concerns. And also there's some concern that it might be handled with less care because it's on a, you know, it just not as, as well suited for really deliberative decision making. Um, but there's also kind of more substantive disputes that, uh, especially with a conservative court that, you know, they're basically giving certain interests a leg up and that they're, you know, favoring certain litigants. Uh, and not others. Since the, you know, the the shadow docket was busy even before the pandemic, but since the pandemic started, there's been you know, almost a COVID-19 sub-shadow docket, uh, so to speak. Have you seen any themes there? Well, uh, the biggest theme I see is that the chief justice in particular is fairly deferential and gives uh, gives states and localities a fair amount of latitude in dealing with these things. That some of the more conservative justices have groused about constraints, you know, singling out religious groups and religious practices, you know, so that uh, uh, so that casinos can keep their doors open, but churches can't. Uh, and the chief, you know, basically, I, I get the sense that if, uh, that if you if you come up with a rational reason for why you're doing stuff, he's going to let you keep on doing it. And I felt like this was one area where maybe they went out of their way to provide a little bit more of an explanation than they otherwise might have. That's been sort of one criticism is that you know, sometimes there'll be an order and then there'll be a dissent explaining why somebody disagrees, but not necessarily any explanation of why the court is doing what it does. But the, yeah, I think that the chief justice had maybe a, a, some sort of concurring opinion or something like that early on that sort of explained a little bit what it was doing that provided a little bit of guidance. That's right. Going that's forward. Right. That's right. It was a little bit less shadowy. And I think that that's always kind of appreciated. When you look at the big picture of the shadow docket, do you see the justices making any changes in how they deal with the shadow docket in the future? They're, you know, they're, they're not exactly out there taking suggestions from the, the Twitterati uh, on, on how they think they should be running the place. The court is a very hidebound institution, so I don't think there'll be big changes, but I do think uh, that they'll probably be a little bit less shadowy. Um, and just as the, you know, many people think that the chief strives for balance, 
um, in the merits docket. Uh, so it doesn't look like such a partisan thing. I think that he will try to bend over backwards to, uh, you know, give a fair shake. So the court doesn't seem like it's uh, being too partisan on the shadow docket. The other thing I, I think is in addition to the fact that I think the chief probably wants to be less shadowy and give more in the way of opinions and full explanation. I think that as the merits docket lightens, uh, it's been kind of trending down, you know, to fewer and fewer merits cases. The justices have more time on their hands and will write more separate opinions to register their views and, and to shape the law. And we see this in some of the cases recently, you know, there's been kind of a rash of opinions uh, recently in the in election cases. And, um, you know, I think that this may be, uh, you know, unintentional and unplanned in some sense, uh, simply because the justices have more time, but I think that it will result in the shadow docket being a little less shadowy. It was actually one thing that I thought, you know, there was the, some discussion of, you know, well, if Biden wins and he, there was this talk of a commission and this seemed like something that might be sort of fodder for a, a commission studying the courts, you know, under the topic of increased transparency. But it does seem increasingly likely that any talk of sort of expanding the court is uh, going to be off the table. Uh, and who knows what the future of any commission would be. So. I think that that's right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that Mitch McConnell is pretty satisfied with the way the Supreme Court's working recently. And yes, the odds yes. of him cooperating in any effort to reform the institution, I think, would be dead on arrival. All right. So, we'll, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll be talking about the shadow docket. We'll have you back again. John Elwood, thanks for joining us. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor, and to our production team, Katie Barlow, Katie Bart, Cal Goldie, and James Ramoser. 